The Millionaire Club Charity is one of Seattle's oldest existing charities. In addition to job placement and employment services, the Millionaire Club provides job training and licensing to help workers become qualified and job ready, from nutritious meals and sack lunches to housing assistance to stabilize their lives. Despite its name, the donors to the Millionaire Club are ordinary citizens with a desire and passion to help fellow citizens overcome the barriers of employment and housing. For more information, call 206-728-JOBS or go to millionaireclub.org. Hey, we're back. Thank you for joining us and being part of the conversation, broadcasting you live around the world and from the Northwest and uh, Mob Studios. Um, we always have a great time coming down here doing the show. We have as our special guest all the way from Tokyo, Japan, uh, our difference, and he's uh, agreed to join us and just uh, talk food, fun, and family. And so we are excited to welcome Reflection all the way from Tokyo. Hey, Reflection, how are you doing, brother? Lewis, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, it's, it's been a while, and uh, everything's good. It's actually great to hear a voice of reason. Love it, your monologue. That yeah, makes a lot of sense. it is. <laughs> well, you, you know, I've been following your cooking, and I've been inspired by you know, a lot of things that you've done food-wise and just, you know, relationship-wise. And I thought it'd be great to share with the listeners, you know, some things about what it takes to be, you know, a chef and food and have a passion. So maybe just uh, share with the listeners a little bit about, you know, your background and what started your passion for cooking. Well, I have to say my passion for cooking goes back. It's really through my whole life. Um, you know, you know how I grew up, but you know, for your yeah. listeners, I grew up on a... Uh, you know, a commune, basically, a hippie commune. It was in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains in Arlington, uh, you know, about 50 miles north of Seattle. And my childhood involved, uh, you know, working in gardens, growing the food that we ate, and also, you know, foraging in the mountains. It involved fishing in the streams. It involved hunting. And it was a really co a connection between uh, where your food comes from that, that, that really spurred my love of food. Yeah. And you know, and also we, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, we, we weren't we weren't we were rich, but we weren't we were poor. Sure. So uh, for me, to, you know, to get my a lot of my protein sources was was uh, bullfrogs or trout or mushroom foraging in the winter. And, uh, you know, it was somewhat out of necessity, but it, it really created a, uh, a bond between me and where the food comes from. Wow. And yeah, I think yeah. the natural solution to becoming a chef. Yeah. So uh, who were some of your mentors? Like who inspired you? Like who, who do you who do you like look back on and say, man, I'm inspired by this particular person that really kind of drove me to go further? So the first chef I ever worked for was his name is Gordon Stewart. And he has, actually has a restaurant called Gordon's on Blueberry Hill on Whidbey Island. And he was the first chef to kind of take me under his wing. Uh, he was the chef at our, uh, our family's restaurant in Arlington called The Bistro. And I was 14 years old, and I uh, got a job as a busboy. It was just after school, and uh, I'd never really seen the ins and outs of a professional kitchen, and it was just amazing for me. Yeah. And he recognized that the, like a light bulb turned on in my head, and he said, hey, I don't, I don't want you to be a busboy. I'd like you to come come behind the counter and work the, you know, the salad station, which is the you know, the beginner station. Yeah. And from there, it was just, uh, you know, I, I realized this is what I want to do. Right. Uh, he was the, my, my very first influence. Yeah. And then, um, but there's so many down the line. It's like every chef you work for is going to give you, you're going to take something from them 
and I think you're also going to offer them something. But Gordon was the the, the first chef to actually uh, make me realize that this is what I wanted to do for a living. Yeah. And so, what do you, what do you think? Like, you know, I, I, we see this trend where everyone believes that they're a chef. You know, they think they're a chef, right? And they're cooking and they're you know posting their food. But what are some of the important ingredients like for a chef really that needs to understand? If you're gonna if you're gonna really be good at preparation and you mentioned some of the the you know organic natural ingredients and things like that. What what are some things that you look at and say, man, you, this is this is a necess- necessity in the kitchen if you're gonna have good ingredients for preparing a meal. So one of the smartest or one of the best lines I've ever heard from a chef I worked for. His name is Mark Forgiung. He's uh, he's one of the Iron Chefs on the Food Network. Uh, he's got I think six different restaurants around the world. But he said to me as a very young cook, he said, "Reflection: the most important ingredients in the kitchen are salt, pepper, and patience." Salt, pepper, and patience. <laughs> salt, pepper, and patience. Because yeah, you know, it. it's chaotic. Uh, it's seeing you. You know, you go into a restaurant, say in New York City, and you're doing 400 people a night, and you've got a kitchen with a crew of 20 people, but it has to work seamlessly. Yeah. You know, you've got to have, you've got to somewhat have someone at the helm. Yeah. Uh, but the most ingredients, I mean, obviously, you know, local organic ingredients that are at the in peak season are the most important. Yeah. But when it really comes down to it, for me, it's, you know, you, you have to be, uh, you have to be a good leader. Sure. Um, but good salt, good pepper. For me, the most important part of uh, a tool as being a chef is a very sharp knife. Okay. A very sharp knife. It, I mean, if you have a dull knife, it affects the flavor of the food down to the molecular level. So you need okay. it's it's all about your tools and the respect that you pay to your tools. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because you know, like one of the big things people talk about uh, in the last several years, farm to table, and you know, sounds like you were kind of ahead of that just in in how your family grew up. Um, but does, is that a trend? Like, do you see you know, like people doing more, trying to grow their own food and grow their own things if they're taken right out of the garden into their kitchen? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely a positive trend. I think it's more of a trend in the United States because the whole food system in the, I think in the 1950s got so industrialized that people lost, lost track of how to grow food because everything, everything became TV dinners and fast food and canned. And it was all about uh, uh, making it easy uh here in japan i don't think it's 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 always been farm to table yeah and i think in many you know uh european countries that that are focused around food that it's that's it's that's always been the way yeah. i think it's more of a trend in in the united states because we got so far away from that yeah. and the idea of like uh having a garden or visiting your local farmer uh became so oh that's what peasants do Right, right, yeah. I think it's a great thing that it's actually coming back to that. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's a millennial old, uh, you know, idea of, of growing, you know, food in your own garden and, yeah. and eating seasonally. Yeah. But with, with industrialization, of, industrialization of the food system, uh, the Americans lost track of that, I think. Yeah, I know that's been a big conversation. Like, I'm a kid, I grew up, you know, where my family, you know, wanted to serve things out of a can and a frozen box. And yeah. uh, early on, I just started to resist that. I'm like, I don't really, I want it fresh. I want it. And my grandmother was a nutritionist, so she tried to do everything fresh. But it really did change the eating habits. You know, when everything came in a box or a can or whatever, uh, and the way that stuff was processed definitely changed 
you know, just a, way, a lot of way how people ate, right? And in America, we're fast food junkies. Yeah. Right? We, we love to do that, but there's nothing like an old-fashioned sort of, you know, meal prepared. And I think that's... Not only that, but you had whole generations of people that forgot how to cook. Yeah. You know, you have kids that were raised in the 50s or the 60s in the, in the United States specifically that were fed food out of a box. And, yeah. and you, you have generations of people that, that lose their connection to food. And what is food? Food is life. Food is right. health. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, it's, it's, the, it's the building blocks of everything. You know, it's, so, inter- it's interesting you say that because, you know, as you know, part of my portfolio is housing development and real estate. And so we noticed one of the trends that are happening is one or two trends. Either people are wanting big, large kitchens that they don't cook in or they're shrinking the size of the kitchen because, uh, you know, millennial plus generations don't cook. They, they want it there more for show than actual use. So that, that's a big trend just and it's affecting housing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's, what's the best part about being a chef? What, what, what do you enjoy the most about that? Well, I think I'm living it right now. Uh, the ability to, to up and move to a new country without really, I, I know the culture, you know, I, my wife is Japanese. We've been married for over 10 years. We've been together for 18 years, yeah. but uh, I can move to a new country and uh, have the ability to speak to other people through food. I've always, I've always thought that food is the universal language, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. if you can just, even if you can't communicate like through language, if you can uh, cook a meal together and sit down and enjoy, I mean, that, yeah. that transcends all barriers. Yeah. So it makes, That's, me, it makes me jump ahead. So how different is it? I mean, you know, obviously you're a New Yorker and boom, you know, now you're in Japan, a different culture, different world, you know, and I know that. You know, like I, I'm a food channel sort of junkie guy, and I know they talk a lot about you know the food in Japan and 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 you know the the specialty and the chef preparation and different stuff of that. What are you seeing differently than than you used to maybe seeing in New York as far as the food scene? Uh, so the food culture in Japan is so ancient, and it's like uh, it's very specific. So you'll have uh, say a sushi chef will train maybe 10 years just to learn how to make the rice properly or uh, kind of the signature of a sushi chef is their tamago, the way they, pre- they prepare an omelet. Uh, but a sushi chef doesn't, uh, you know, uh, learn how to do ramen, right? right? So it's very, very like cuisine specific. Yeah. So uh, someone who makes, for example, soba noodles might train their entire life right. how to make this very specific type of noodle to make it perfect. And it's a dedication to an art and a craft. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think the main difference, I, I'd say, between the states and coming here is that you go to a, when you go to say to a restaurant in the states, it's a Japanese restaurant. They're going to serve sushi and they're going to serve maybe ramen and soba and tempura all under the same uh, under the same roof. Okay. You're never going to see that here. Interesting. You know, they're going to have very very specific restaurants for that specific craft. Yeah. Does that, that ex- sense. does that expand like, okay, so if you got all the different places and that expands the number of places that people can go and eat, right? So now you can go to multiple places or different places if you want a particular type of food. Yeah. I mean, for in my, in my uh, neighborhood, for example, you know, there's, uh, you know, you're going to have five or six different sushi spots. You're going to have five or six different soba spots, five or six different ramen spots. Okay. And, you know, you're going to go out and eat, you know, what am I feeling like tonight? 
Yeah. But you're never really it's you're never really going to have a combination of uh, going out and eating ramen and tempura and soba. It's just it's very very focused. Yeah, because uh, we're friends, right? And obviously, I, I I track you on social media, and I see a number of the fishing scenes, like right yeah. going out fishing. So how different is that? Is it like is the fish really different, or is just quality different, or types are different, or what's what's the change there? Okay, so the Japanese are master fishermen. And they, this, it, uh, so every every different fish has a different technique, and also you're going to need different uh, gear to fish for. So since I've been in Japan, I mean I've gone deep sea fishing. I go I right behind me is Tokyo Bay. Uh, wow. So yeah. it, right out there, I go fishing for sea bass, aji, which is horse mackerel. Uh, in the springtime, we have anchovies and sardines that come through. Uh, last week, I was up in the mountains near Nagano. And that's trout fishing, like, you know, we're fly fishing. Uh, so it's just, it's, I think fishing everywhere around the world is very, it's very specific in the gear that you use. Yeah. I just think Japanese take it to the next level. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, uh, I thought I was a really good fisherman until I'm around these guys really? and their techniques and just, just the way that they bait the fish and the way that they set the hook and the specific baits they use. It's yeah. really, really incredible. Yeah. Hey, if you're just joining us, we're talking live with Tokyo, Japan, with my friend Reflection, Chef, and has been, you know, in the business of just preparing and cooking food for a very long time. And, uh, and it's just, you know, a, a great opportunity just to hear as he's moved to New York. So, again, you can throw your questions in the chat. We'll try to get to him. If not, I'll obviously, you know, I'll email you and make sure we get, uh, get connections to that. Uh, Reflection, how is social media change the way like food is presented because one of the things i see a lot right and i did it i'm guilty like i was not good at presenting food but i take a picture and throw it up there right uh, how's that impacted like businesses though you know like the that that vehicle and the tool of social media now where you can post and people can see what you're eating or where you're at and those sort of things so you know i you I thought about this and I, I think it's, it's, it's most about chefs have to keep up with trends, food trends, not only chefs, but restaurateurs, if they want to keep that kind of social media exposure. Okay. So uh, when you have foods that are in, in style at that moment, uh, you, you, you need to be able to bring in, in guests that are, are looking for that specifically uh, if they're using their social media to, to advertise it. Right. Okay. Um, but I think, and this goes back a little bit before social media, I call it the food network effect. Yeah. And working in restaurants and being a chef has been so romanticized. You know, it's like, it makes it feel like uh, all, all, what I do for a living is I go in the morning and I just cook food and everything's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, you know, a right. great, you know, non-stressful experience. Right. Uh, but the reality of being a chef is, you know, you're going to put in, 10 to 15 to 20 years of 16 hour days in a hot sweaty basement kitchen before you have the the skills available to you know to run a restaurant yeah yeah so I, I think one of the things that you know i like for me was uh you know watching you know world renowned you know anthony bardane tony bardane and you know talk about you know his beginning and 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 he took that romantic 
you know, as you said, that romanization out of it a little bit because he showed yeah. like what it's like to be in a kitchen, the yelling, the screaming, the pots, the fans, yeah. the time, the prep. You know, it really is a lot. I mean, I you you see this picture in the end, but really. There, there's hours and hours behind. But not only hours, you're talking like, you know, like for me, I, I look back on it. I spent all of my 20s uh, without a vacation. Uh, I was toiling in New York City restaurants under, you know, high, you know, three Michelin star, in some cases, French chefs that would, you know, scream at you, you know, for the smallest mistake. Right. Uh, but I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't wouldn't say that I perfected my craft, but I'm very good at my craft. Yeah. But it, it took many years of dedication and, you know, working every holiday. Yeah. You know, you're working every New Year's Eve, you're working every Christmas Eve, you're working on your birthday every year. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I, how I feel about that is, and I think that's why they're having staffing issues for, for young cooks in restaurants now is because they see the glamorous side of it, the beautiful yeah. pictures or the, the chef in the perfectly tailored chef coat. Yeah. They don't realize that to get to that point, you've got you've got to put in a lot of time and sweat. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of a US problem. We like the we like the end result. We like that we we, we idolize that piece of it, but we really yeah. don't think about what it takes to, like you said, wear the coat or be that chef that you know owns multiple restaurants and, and so forth. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to have a reflection share really a fun story, a burger story. I'm a burger guy, and he's got a great story about a burger and uh, making that, uh, that for the first time for someone. So stay with us. We'll, we'll throw a quick commercial in, and we'll come back and uh, wrap up with our good friend reflection all the way from Tokyo, Japan. You listen to Lewis Hour Live. We'll stay and uh, do a quick break. We'll be right back. The Millionaire Club Charity is one of Seattle's oldest existing charities. In addition to job placement and employment services, the Millionaire Club provides job training and licensing to help workers become qualified and job ready, from nutritious meals and sack lunches to housing assistance to stabilize their lives. Despite its name, the donors to the Millionaire Club are ordinary citizens with a desire and passion to help fellow citizens overcome the barriers of employment and housing. For more information, call 206-728-JOBS or go to millionaireclub.org. Hey, we're back. Thank you for being part of the conversation. We are just talking food, fun, passion, uh, with reflection all the way in Tokyo, Japan. That's right. And uh, he has joined us, and I appreciate because there's a big time difference, and uh, he's been kind of just to share his background and passion on uh, food. And um, 
So two things. Well, let's let's talk about that because I don't know if we got that live. Right. Let's talk about you got some upcoming projects that you're doing. Let's talk about that. Just kind of share that a little bit with the audience. Um, reflections. Yes. Yeah, so I recently paired with a um, restaurateur who lives in a small town called Azumino. And Azumino is in what's called the Nagano Valley. And Nagano uh, was the site of the, to- of the uh, Winter Olympics in 1998. Okay. And a city that's in the Japanese Alps. And most people are surprised when they hear this, but uh, the Japanese Alps were, uh, received the highest snowfall, uh, the highest recorded snowfall in the history of the world. Wow. Interesting. Uh, Never knew that. I love yeah, and they're, they're really... I these love are out- these out- facts. See, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And so uh, there's a, a valley down below Nagano with lots of small towns. And I recently partnered with a uh, restaurateur. Uh, he owns uh, a, it's kind of a tea house, like a Japanese tea house called Apples and Roses. But he also has locations in uh, Shibuya, Shibuya, which is a ma- major district of Tokyo. And he's uh, right now opening up a location in Fukuoka, which is a the largest city on the southern island of Kyushu of Japan. Wow. But in working with him and also a uh, sake producer called Masumi. Okay. And uh, the gentleman from Masumi, his name is Katsu-san. He's the 24th generation owner of his family's sake brewery. It goes back to the year 1604. Are you kidding me? It's 24. 1604. Wow, 1604. That's a long time to keep it in the same family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, how it works in Japan, it's, you know, the the, the family business is passed down to the males. Uh, I mean, that's a whole whole other subject to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, But he's the 24th generation owner of of his family's brewery. And uh, we met and we, we, it turned out we knew some of the same people in New York. Okay. And he speaks English very well, so we just had this connection, and we said, "Hey, let's 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 uh, do some events, and where we pair uh, kind of your cooking style with all the all the ingredients from around this area." Wow! So that's so gonna be, yeah, that's gonna be a cool menu. All right, so yeah. sh- share with me uh, this 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 burger store. Share with our listeners about the burger store because I was following that on um, Facebook uh, that you did. Yeah. And uh, it was fascinating just to, to see that, you know, we take it for granted. We're burger people in the U.S., but this was a different experience. Yeah, so my, my father-in-law is 84 years old, and uh, he's a doctor. Uh, he's actually received uh, the equivalency of a knighthood from the emperor of Japan for his efforts in uh, pediatric medicine. Um, and we we usually go to you know grandpa's house on the weekends just to spend time with him and uh my son said dada i I haven't had a good burger for for months you know we have we're surrounded by amazing food here in japan but it's really hard to find a good burger yeah so i said all right but i don't know if Gigi's gonna like it Gigi is a grandfather okay okay so we got a charcoal fire going, and I picked up some really good high-quality beef and uh, some good cheese and um, grilled off some burgers. And Grandpa was a bit skeptical at first, but he ended up eating two of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. First time eating that kind of uh, level of burger, 84. That's pretty cool. Well, any burger. He's 84 years old, 84. and it's he's the first had- time he's ever had a hamburger. Wow. 
That is amazing. And, <laughs> and I know that, you know, obviously Wagyu beef has really changed the U.S., right? Now it's like everywhere. It wasn't. I mean, it was yeah. really specialized. So what is it? It's Wagyu. That's the main one. Is there another... Is there another beef that comes out? Is that the main? Okay, so Wagyu is the breed of cattle that was, it's kind of, it's not native to Japan. Okay. Cows were brought to Japan, I believe, in the 1600s. Okay. Uh, but it's just the way that over the centuries they bred to have what's called intermuscular fat. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you get like a really good, say, prime uh, Black Angus ribeye in the States, you're going to have a lot more marbling. Yeah. Uh, the, the Wagyu beef is... It's basically meat butter. Okay. The, the amount of fat that's inside of it. Now, for me, I, I'll eat maybe like a two or three ounce Wagyu steak. That's really as much as you want to eat because it's like, it's like eating foie gras. Okay. Yeah. But when you do the ground Wagyu, they'll use like the leaner cuts from the shoulder mm -hmm. or the, the, you know, like maybe that chuck. Yeah. So you're going to get like a 60-40 fat blend. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you, you, you know. You gotta cook it high, high and fast. Yeah. So you know, he, but uh, funny story. He we're going, you know, to visit Gigi's house this weekend, and he requested that we do burgers again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he's eaten wagyu beef his whole life, but this he said this was the first time that he had paired meat and cheese together. Interesting. That's so fascinating, right? That you just assume everybody's had a burger. Everybody, you know, yeah. That, no, that's that is a. That's why I love the story because that's the cool that that cool part of it. Serving somebody a burger but for the first time. So another fun part of it. It's like uh, so. My son, he, you know, we eat amazing Japanese food all the time. But when I'm yeah. cooking at home, he always requests data. Can you make like a spaghetti bolognese, or can you make pizza, or can you make a burgers? Things that he grew up with in New York. That yeah. it's, it's not really that accessible here in japan yeah, yeah but i obviously know how to cook them and cook them properly right right, right. so Grand grandpa's been uh introduced to a lot of uh kind of uh his grandson's uh food that he grew up with yeah yeah and i would be remiss i probably should have done this at the beginning but you know giving a shout out to uh Justice Love Israel, who kind of introduced us and brought us together, and I spent many days at his house cooking. And one of my favorite times was that you had come to from New York, and you guys just—I only word I can say—it was a throwdown. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a food coma throwdown. I don't think uh, it was one of the most enjoyable meals that I, I think I've ever uh, had. It was just—it was—it was, it was great watching the both of you cook. And the preparation, but man, it was it was a meal to be had. Uh, and yeah, you so, know, Justice is one of uh, my favorite people in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's great to have those uh, common uh, common connections. So reflection. Uh, I, I'm a new chef, brand new, and I'm thinking about maybe as a career, or you know, maybe I got enough money to start a restaurant. I don't know, whatever the thing is. What what would you tell somebody that's aspiring to be a new chef or restaurateur or somebody that you know wants to be the man or the woman and, you know, be in charge of the food. Uh, what, what insights would you have for them? All right. So owning and operating a restaurant is, I would say, one of the most difficult pro professions in the world. Uh, maybe that's a little bit hyperbolic, but yeah. uh, the profit margins are so tight. Uh, everybody, you know, lots of people I know know how to cook, but yeah. like, 
putting that into a business model is very, very difficult to do without understanding the nature of the business. Yeah. And the nature of the business is, you know, it's, it's all about the people that you have around you. It's all about the people that you hire. Yeah. It's all, if, if you're a restaurant owner, it's your managers. But uh, in a lot of cases, the most important person in a restaurant is a lot of times the dishwasher. Hmm. Why do you say that? Because they keep, keep the flow of everything going. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it takes many years of working in a restaurant to to understand uh, how difficult it can be to to operate a restaurant. Well, you you just made me feel good because my very first job, 16, I was a dishwasher in a restaurant. So that's what I started out, you know, running that little dishwasher up and down and getting plates, getting yelled at because I didn't have enough clean plates. Yeah. But think think if you were there. Think if, you yeah. know, what yeah. happens to the restaurant if the dishwasher breaks? Yeah. I mean, I, I, not you, the dishwasher. I mean, right. the, the physical dishwasher. If I don't make but enough what, money, I might have to go back. <laughs> yeah. But what, what happens if the dishwasher right. shuts down? Yeah. The whole restaurant. Yeah. yeah. You, you can't give people dirty glasses, dirty plates. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it, there's just so many moving components that go into a restaurant that you've got to, I think the most important thing is you have to have the, the proper people around you and you have to yeah. you have to treat them with respect because yeah. if you don't treat them with, with respect they're not going to respect you yeah. and without people you're not going to have any business yeah no i think i think you're right two things we know that uh, a large number of restaurants fail in the first two or three years um yep. and uh, and then one of the questions that you know i want to ask is you know probably more on the serious note is you know just the effects of the of, of the covid and the pandemic over the last two years on you know, restaurants and the food industry and so forth. Uh, does any of that, are you seeing any of that in Japan or is it, you know, that they've just, you know, they have a different group that they're operating by? Okay, so there's different rules here. Um, most people here in Japan aren't vaccinated yet. Uh, the, the equivalent of the FDA here in Japan, they wanted to do quite a bit more testing on the Pfizer vaccine before they did major vaccinations. Okay. But as far as restaurants are concerned, they never force any businesses to close. They just gave them time, time parameters. Okay. So no businesses, no theaters, anything like that was forced to close here in Japan. What they said is, uh, we're asking you to, uh, you know, not, uh, you go to a restaurant, you know, cross street from a house. It's like, if you're drinking, please keep your, uh, you know, your noise down. Okay. Yeah, but the the major effect here in Japan, you have a lot of they keep uh, expanding like the they're not lockdowns here, but there's restrictions. Like yeah. they'll restaurants that would be open till four, they're closing them at ten p.m. Okay, but they keep extending, so they're saying, okay, this is going to go uh, from April to May, and then and then it was May to June, and it was June to July, and now you have a, a lot of restaurants that are basically saying fuck you to the right. to the Japanese government, saying what are you going to do about it. Ah, interesting. And so I was in Tokyo last week. We were staying at the Imperial Hotel and mask requirements, temperature requirements. You couldn't drink alcohol with your meal. But if I crossed the street, there was this huge food hall and there was probably a thousand people in there drinking. There was people playing live music. There was, you know, so just like the States, it's a bit confused here. Okay. Yeah. A bit jumbled, if that makes sense. Right. No, that totally makes sense. Uh, in rapid, what's been your 
favorite experience? What's been the standout since you moved your family over there? And, you know, that's obviously made your lifestyle change. And what's, what has stood out to you as an experience so far? Well, it's not a, not an individual experience, but I, you know, we moved here ultimately for my son and his quality of life. Yeah. And, you know, I love New York city. I will always love New York city, but, uh, the difference between a 25 year old that was, you know, working as a line cook in a restaurant, moving his way up to a close to 40 year old man with a you know, nine year old son, yeah. uh, New York had, had got a little bit, to be honest with you, it was a bit dangerous. Okay. Um, especially with a Asian family, Asian wife, there was right. a, a lot of like uh, Asian hate crimes that yep. were happening around yep. the neighborhood. Yep. And, and I didn't feel comfortable even letting my son walking down, walk out of the grocery store. You know, I oh. always had to be with him. Yeah. Yeah. And here he has complete freedom. You know, he has the keys to the house. Uh, he says, Dada, I'm, you know, I'm going to the park. I'm going to the grocery store. I'm going to go out and have ramen. Say, see you later, son. Have a good time. Yeah, yeah. And I feel 100% comfortable that wow. nothing is going to happen to him here. Yeah. And that is the biggest change for him. He's.